I'm done with school. Our show's going to be the most normal it's ever been. Do you like Do you like original flavor work stoppage without a beleaguered John and a scrunched up production schedule? Well, get ready because we're putting we're taking out the high fructose corn syrup and putting the cane sugar back in. <laughs> That's right, folks. We are announcing our new partnership with Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. We are officially now not only America best labor podcast, but also Mexico's by partnering with somebody who at least recognizes that we should not be poisoning people with like the worst kind of like corn reduced sugar substitute product. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny because you live in the United States and you think like, you know, every liberal politician is a disease. And then you look outside of the United <laughs> States and you're like, maybe there are well-meaning liberals in the world. <laughs> Are they effective? Not really, but I I do think they probably exist. Yeah, I, I mean, Amlo is like definitely one of the most contradictory of those guys because it's just like well, look. builds housing for poor people. Amazing. Helps support, you know, measures to end the ban on abortion in the country. Also awesome. Wants to build a really gigantic, technically questionable train project. Well-intentioned, at least, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah. then there's all the stuff with, like, working with the U.S. on border security shit where I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. Yeah, well, look, uh, Mexico is kind of a big, complicated country. <laughs> it's true. It's pretty hard to govern. And at the end of the day, he is a liberal. So, yeah. I mean, like, well, it's the huge, same thing. I th- Huge improvement over, like, the last few guys before him. Sure. I mean, there's like, you know, even Lula, who I openly like quite a bit, (laughs) is a liberal with liberal limitations around his politics, you know? Yeah, he's done some cool stuff, though. Yeah, oh, he's yeah. great. Don't get me wrong. Like of all the liberals leading countries in the world, I think he's my favorite, and I think it's not very close, really. But like, he's still a liberal. Like that's just how. It now is. you're making me think. Like, what? Who's my favorite liberal? Well, it's all. Be, Why do I have to make I, this decision? I, this, this feels like a wrong decision to make. The, the, I think this is just the Latin American exception, to be honest. Where it's like when the whole region has been subjugated by the United States for so long. Like mm-hmm. the a lot of those like governments don't even necessarily have much in the way of sovereignty or freedom to act, which I feel like gives a little bit of an opening for like more reasonable social democrats to come out and just be like, what if we were not a colony? And that is a ama- like a huge improvement then, yeah, applause, over everything just- else. <laughs> so like there's a lot of space there for liberals to do stuff that's like genuinely a huge improvement over just being, you know, a, a colony of the US without actually having to necessarily completely abandon the tenets of like social democratic capitalism. I'm so excited to put all the sound effects over this cold open. <laughs> Hell yeah. And because uh, we especially went into this wanting to go into a big dissertation on our opinions about the presidency of Mexico. <laughs> More important than the presidency of the United States. Well, but I think yeah. that's a discussion for another time. That is a discussion. Or for just later time. in this episode. I think <laughs> what the time is right for is for me to say... My name is John. 
I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It's the only way we get any funding. Hop in the Discord if you're not already in there. It's the only way we get to talk to you. Uh, Message me on Patreon if you're a subscriber. It's the only way you can get stickers. And leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's not the only anything, but I think you should probably do it. We would appreciate it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, we started, for some reason, talking about the presidency of Mexico. So let's actually start talking about the presidency of Argentina for a bit with a quick mm-hmm. follow-up on one of the stories that we've been talking about for the last couple is of weeks. That, is that segue because they uh, are shaped slightly similar? or uh, Well, no, it, I was just, just be- going from one presidency to another. <laughs> They're very oh, different right. countries. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we, talk, we talked about AMLO and then we talked about Lula, so if we continue in the same <laughs> okay, direction, we, we end go. up in Argentina. The, now the connection <laughs> Yeah, all right. So we, we have reached the southern cone. Uh, and, and so... You know, we've been talking about on the last few episodes about the election of anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, Murray Rothbard, loving motherfucker. Uh, Extra spicy fascist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Javier Malay in, in Argentina. And the response from the Argentine working class to his attempts to really just dismantle uh, all labor rights in the country and turn Argentina... Like, not even from a neo-colony of the U.S., but just a straight-up colony where it's like, we don't even have our own currency. We're just going to use the dollar. Yes. <laughs> Which is an absolutely wild move. And so, you know, obviously we talked about on the 24th, there was the big general strike by, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers across the country to protest the attempt to gut various labor rights. And now we got a little bit of good news, finally, for once in this struggle. Less than a week after the massive one-day general strike that we had talked about, on Tuesday, January 30th, Argentina's legal system struck down Malay's attempt to push through, like, the just gutting of labor rights in the country by decree, where he was basically trying to create a eight-month trial period for all workers, where you could be fired for basically anything, uh, which now... I will say for our American listeners, uh, in a lot of the rest of the world, that's not the case for most jobs. For us, it is because we Mm -hmm. live in the heart of capitalism and it's terrible. Uh, But in a lot of places, there's at least some protections where you have to actually be fired for cause. And that's the case in Argentina. But, you know, this part of Malay's attempts to change the labor code in Argentina is creating this basically eight month free fire zone where, where like you could just have somebody in for seven months and 30 days and then fire them for absolutely nothing for no reason and be able to get away with it. So it's like the purge for employers, but it lasts for eight months. Yeah. Or if you're an American worker, your entire life. Oh yeah. It's just right to work. <laughs> it's like living in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the other things it would have done, you know, it would have drastically reduced the legal requirements for severance pay for workers, basically a lot, making it much, much cheaper to fire people. Essentially, Malay is like trying to push through. He's like, how can I make it easier to increase the unemployment rate so that mm-hmm. I can put more and more pressure on workers and drive wages down? Yeah. And so this was his first attempt to impose all these by decree, but Argentina's court system took a look at that, you know, this past week. We're like, yeah, you can't, there's no reason to do this. (laughs) They're like, there's no pressing emergency of overly employed Argentine workers uh, where the economy has collapsed. In fact, it's uh, Malay's policies that are causing the economy really to spiral even more out of control than it already was. 
Well, yeah, it's like funny because the crisis that you describe overemployed Argentine workers mm-hmm. is like the problem he's trying to fix is a good thing. Exactly. Like, if if employment were too high, then like, I don't know. This always irks me because it's like at some is there literally no countervailing force within capitalism that says like, hey, actually, the health of a national economy is dependent on the security of the workers at some point in national development like it seems like even liberals would be able to eventually arrive there and that's uh, i think one of the the differences in this like quote-unquote anarcho-capitalist structure in that uh the parts where it would be like more liberal in the the way that most people allude to liberalism are uh, much more closer to fascism in this regard. Yeah. Well, it's well, almost like I guess. I mean, I guess it's 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 not an accident that you find those positions close over and over and over again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's also like the way I ask the question is maybe kind of silly because it's like guys like Javier Malay are specifically a program to erode people's imagination about like. Even the liberal, what you would call like social democratic type of worker security that would, even in a liberal capitalist society, maintain some kind of like national economic security on a real scale. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not it's funny. It's it's the linkage you can very quickly and a lot of people in the 30s very quickly did do from you. You can actually critique capitalism from the right in that way where you're basically Mm -hmm. arguing that because capitalism is so individualistic, it actually erodes and degrades any sort of national consciousness of the people because it puts the interests of the bourgeoisie above the nation. And so like, but the problem is you can't really use that argument in a left wing way because you are arguing that people should venerate a nation state like over the, their working conditions and over like, anything and and while you're maintaining the key thing there while you're maintaining the state under the control of those same few individuals mm-hmm. who you're mad about putting their interests above said state so it's 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 all this weird smoke and mirrors fascist bullshit but ultimately the the, the to your your real point there like it there really isn't anything in capitalism stopping mm. you know folks from doing this and because again it's and it that ultimately comes down to the core of what nationalism is usually used for, especially in capitalist countries, which is, again, not to promote the interests of the people of the nation, but to promote the interests of the nation in air quotes by which they mean what our own rulers say when they say we're protecting America's interests, which means the pocketbooks of the governing class. Sure. So, yeah. And that's like the distinction between your proletarian nationalism right. of the oppressed and you're like weird psycho Carl Schmidt European type nationalism right because it is they're like we have to protect the nation and what they mean is mm-hmm. the structure by which like seven families control 90% of the wealth right whereas in like Vietnam when they're like we have to protect the nation they mean like the people right all of them <laughs> right uh, definitely it, yeah that's, and that's a pretty important distinction yes. Absolutely. Well, you know, language is tricky. And people say you don't need philosophy in politics. Yeah, I absolutely do, because that's where you get semantics. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've had this big abstract <laughs> discussion that has very little to do with the actual story, um, you know, it, this, unfortunately, like, this is a this is a, certainly a good news story where Malay has been you know, obstructed mm-hmm. from being able to just rule by a decree in this way. 
But unfortunately, it's really more of like it's a temporary roadblock because Malay's victory did come along with a lot of victories for right-wing members of the legislature as well. So there are a lot of these aspects of this bill that are currently being considered by Argentina's legislature. And so while he's been stopped from imposing these by decree, a lot of the other draconian policies that he wants to include in this like giant omnibus reform bill are still continuing to move through the economy and continue to threaten to potentially impose these like massive deregulations of the economy and just handing over whole sectors of it to U.S. corporations. And, and you know, at the same time, we see the IMF coming in to try and prop up Malay specifically with temporary loans to make it seem like his recent policies that have drastically jacked up inflation haven't actually done that so that he can get, you know, these reforms in and basically artificially make it look like his policies are doing better than they are by simply infusing billions of dollars of liquidity from the outside in the form of the IMF. Uh, which is, again, this is the same thing. This is the same thing that the IMF always does when they basically set up either a coup or they get lucky with a really good propaganda uh, set up and a really feckless opposition uh, in this case. Uh, then they just move in to artificially prop things up and break their own rules. It's the same, like when South Korea was under a military dictatorship governed by the United States, they were allowed to use, you know, state planning in order to accelerate their industrialization because the United States knew it would be more effective and they wanted to try and keep up with the DPRK. So, you know, this is, it's the same thing with the IMF here where they talk, go on and on and on about how, oh, we can't provide loans to countries that would make them too dependent on welfare. We have to have really high interest rates and keep people trapped in debt traps unless you've privatized your whole economy for us and allowed us to come in and buy up all your resources, in which case, you know, we'll give you all the loans you need. So, yeah, all this to say, uh, I think. Well, this is going to be a continued story that we're going to be watching this year as the Argentine working class, you know, develops more newer and different tactics to fight back against these attempts to destroy labor rights in the country. Uh, but for now, you know, there's a bit of a, a victory, but there's still a long struggle ahead. So solidarity with the Argentine workers as they fight against this wannabe Pinochet. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in other uh, entirely foreseeable consequences of things, I, we can move to our next story because, you know, as we've seen the quote unquote end of the ongoing pandemic, so many companies have used return to work policies to force workers back into the offices. And uh, they were mostly trying to justify it with the uh, there it, there will be a, uh, an increase in pro productivity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's mostly just to justify the expensive commercial real estate that they rent and 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 such but uh and and i mean also another important thing to recognize is that they use it to justify the uh you know endless strata of, of middle managers but mm -hmm. these policies uh while being weaponized against you know vulnerable people as a form of union busting on top of all of the other issues we actually have a, a an article this week from business insider that demonstrates that uh it's actually totally not true that these returned work policies have uh increased productivity at all yeah and it's it's really in like i said entirely a foreseeable consequence yeah i mean this is one of those things they're like i'm glad they did this study because now we have like you know the piece of paper with the stamp of 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 uh credentialism on it <laughs> that you can hold up for people you have the official objective scientific look at this but i also feel like people could have um come to this conclusion by just asking 
the workers involved. <laughs> because right. like you were alluding to, you know, every time we have talked about return to office policies on the show, it has been because a company has been implementing one for no reason ex- the, from a business perspective. That the workers have been like, we're, we actually got more productive when we switched to work from home, so why would we switch back? And every single time it turns out it's because, oh, there was a union starting to form and they wanted to crush it. Or you had a whole bunch of managers who weren't really doing anything anymore and a lot of upper-level people starting to maybe recognize that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's been wild to see. like, And it's all behind this this language of like, oh, no, we're just doing this for, for, for business reasons. It's We're just looking at the accounting numbers and they say, you got to put everybody back in the office or the profits aren't going to come back <laughs> right right and i mean speaking to that there was a discussion of the research that was recently published at the university of pittsburgh where researchers uh at the university said quote results of our determinant analysis are consistent with managers using return to office mandates to reassert control over employees and blame employees as a scapegoat for bad firm performance Also, our findings do not support the argument that managers impose mandates because they believe RTO increases firm values, end quote. Which, I mean, that's just saying, so it was a lie, Mm -hmm. and it's clear that it was a lie, and also it doesn't actually improve productivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's literally only a form of labor discipline. Mm-hmm. And they found that over a hundred com- with uh, over a hundred companies that they analyzed, the return to office policies were commonly implemented in poorly performing firms as a way to improve performance. But in practice, uh, this did not work. Instead, many employees report a significant decline in work-life balance and job satisfaction, which uh, I imagine doesn't help productivity. No. <laughs> No, absolutely not. Um, and as somebody who could definitely work from home a lot more than I, I I do at my job, I don't know that I would be more, to be completely honest, I don't know that I would be more productive if I worked from home. But I know for a fact I would not be less productive. <laughs> and there's plenty of other jobs that are far more easy to do from any location than than mine. So, like, yeah, this whole idea that... You, you that the office has some mystical productivity enhancing powers. It's like, yeah, sure, maybe you want to have some sort of a meeting space that you can use every once in a while to get people together for some in-person collaboration. But like the idea that you have to be there nine to five, five days, like five days a week, or else your company is not going to be able to compete is just stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make yeah. no it's sense. Like- <laughs> What if we had, like, a library or something where you could just, like, you know, go into a room and have a meeting every once in a while? Well, like, I'm applying for a bunch of tech jobs right now, and it's, like, a lot of them that I was hoping to see as, like, work from home are, like, this is a hybrid position. You will be expected to occasionally arrive Mm -hmm. in the office, and then you look further into the description, and they're like, we want you to be in the office two to three days a week. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) no. What's reasonable is once in, like, a few times a month, you call, and you're like, hey, there's a meeting that needs to be in person. But here's the thing, like, with management, 
think about all the meetings that could be emails and then think about mm-hmm. all the big meetings that could be small meetings and then think about like everything gets blown out of proportion so fast. So, you know, for a fact, you're going to get called to drive 45 minutes to the office for something that's going to take 15 minutes to talk about and five minutes to solve. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a meeting that has three people that need to be in it and six people who have nothing to do with it, who just sit there the yeah. whole time. <laughs> Correct. Twiddling their thumbs. Yep. <laughs> so, Anyways, you know, if if you've been, I, I will say the one thing that I think is really important to take away from this is not just, you know, the fact that RTO is purely a form of labor discipline because we kind of already knew that. But like mm-hmm. even the researchers agree with that now at this point. So if you ever need like a study to show to people, it's out there. Um, but, you know, in addition to these horrible draconian return to the office policies that we see bosses doing. Another thing that we see bosses doing a lot of time that's uh, that's pretty shady is just straight up fucking stealing from their workers. Like, and to be clear, on top of the stealing they're already doing just as a part of the nature of the whole system. <laughs> uh, you know, when they say uh, crime is on the rise, for one, they're lying, but also they're not talking about this. <laughs> well, yeah, because that's the thing. Is like, uh, yeah, you always get all these fucking stories about fear-mongering about organized shoplifting rings and all this bullshit. Yeah, that's not real. Those are not an actual thing. Those were fake stories that were literally psyops designed to get you to support more draconian police. Um, But where there really are big organized theft rings is most businesses. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And and not, again, not just surplus value, which is, of course, stolen from everybody in every uh, private enterprise under capitalism. But just straight up wage theft. You know, we talk about it a ton on the show. It's rampant throughout the United States. It's by far the most common form of theft, even when you use the bourgeois definition of what theft is. Like, it, it I think it dwarfs all other forms combined. Yes, uh, correct. And, and again, of course, though, it's rarely discussed in the corporate press since the corporate press is made by and for the people doing the wage thievery. I had this imagined uh, a like news segment on like a local news program where they're like, oh yeah, and there's all these theft things, and then you always like if you track tacked on at the end, and you know it's always important to remember that wage theft is actually the large <laughs> the most the the largest amount of theft that happens, and then uh, you know that later that week you get canned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like making them do it like as like a like one of those like fine print high speed blurbs at the end of an infomercial, right? <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, because this week, you know, we found out about another major organized wage theft ring, this one being run out of a Portland, Oregon restaurant chain. Now, this is probably going to sound familiar because the service industry is probably the site of more wage theft than like that. And probably like construction, are, I would imagine, are like by far the two most intensive sectors for wage theft. And service, it's specifically due to the U.S.'s ridiculously antiquated system about tipping. Uh, Because, you know, as reported by the Willamette Week, on January 23rd, the Department of Labor charged the owners of McManaman's, which is a uh, chain of two dozen restaurants and pubs and I guess like concert venues uh, in Washington and Oregon, where they were running a tip-stealing scheme where they forced the workers to give managers some of their tips. Now, that may sound familiar to people, and I wouldn't be surprised if people didn't even realize that that's extremely illegal. (laughs) 
uh, because of how common this this sort of bullshit is. But it is very illegal. And and the Department of Labor found that the chains Edgefield and Cedar Hills locations between 2019 and 2020 forced servers to give their managers over $800,000 in tips that were rightfully the workers. So in those, you know, four years, that's like 200,000 in stolen tips per year. That's just so much money. And I mean, like, obviously, like you said, that's not even considering the surplus value stolen. Like, that's just what under our legal system is supposed to be uh, given. And like, yeah, because this is basically (laughs) the whole reason the tipped wage exists is to prop up awful small business tyrants by allowing them to not pay their workers and basically getting like handing that over to the customer. And yet these places can't even be, you know, content with that. They're like, no, no, we got to steal some of those tips too. (laughs) And so, and so in response, the department of labor jumped into action and they sent the owners a sternly worded letter (laughs) saying, quote, An employer may not require an employee to give their tips to the employer, a supervisor, or a manager, even where a tipped employee receives at least the federal minimum wage, currently $7.25 per hour, in wages directly from the employer, and the employer takes no tip credit. That's not even a cease and desist letter. No, they're literally just like, by the way, this is what the law is, in case you're interested. You know, (laughs) I mean, like, I, I remember on occasion looking up laws and trying to show my manager laws, and uh, I think that that's about as uh, if, uh, useful as what is happening here. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Because unfortunately, that's the part of the story where the good part ends, the good part being the D- Department of Labor identified and, I guess, pointed out a company engaging in systemic wage theft. Uh, but unfortunately, they basically decided to do nothing. <laughs> Because, you know, as we talk about on the show all the time, like, you can make something illegal, but that doesn't mean the state's going to enforce it. Like, ultimately, so many times it comes down to the workers themselves having to do it. And this is a perfect case of at least the first half of that, where the Department of Labor here is basically functioning as an illusion of accountability. Because they came in and were like, hey, you're stealing. And they're like, no, we're not. And they're like, well, don't do it anymore. (laughs) <laughs> and then they stand there and they're like, aha, I did it. It's that like Sailor Moon meme where they just, I've done it. Now I can leave. They're like, wait, but you didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except like this is even worse because it's specifically their job to do something. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that guy just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And so the letter that they sent closed with, quote, no further action will be taken to secure payment of additional money possibly owed to workers the just like straight up like we're not gonna do anything like what why put that in the fucking letter well it's so weird because they like with the letter you're acknowledging that the money owed to workers possibly i would say by acknowledging it probably extremely likely exists and then you're just like yeah but maybe it doesn't and also we can't do anything about it yeah well, and to clarify, this letter was was sent to the owners and to the victims of the wage theft. And so to me, the whole reason they put that in here was like, okay, yeah, we yeah, they were stealing from you, and we're not gonna do anything. So don't call us again. Like that to, like that's really how it reads to me, to be honest. 
Well, I mean, it uh, is not exactly surprising with the way that the state is set up uh, in favor of the bosses, because, uh, you know, if I had managed to, if, yeah, say uh, me and a couple of friends managed to steal nearly a million dollars from some business, we would be in prison for years and years mm-hmm. and years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead, these folks just keep to, they get to deny it and keep doing it. They get to keep the money. They uh-huh. get to keep the nearly the million dollars. I mean, I guess if there isn't a giant lawsuit that these incredibly wealthy workers can pay for. <laughs> yeah, because oh, wait, that's the thing is their only their only recourse at this point would be a civil suit. And good luck with that in this system. And like you said, or even getting the resources to, to start one in the first place. Yeah, it's. It's really it's it's extremely fucked because yeah they basically said they're like yeah the only recourse for the workers is is to sue the company directly, and yeah like you said who has the time or money to do that? And I don't I don't understand this because it's against <laughs> the law, but the it's suddenly it's civil that we need to do it uh-huh. like you, to take them to civil court. Well, remember when 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 our politicians say that that you know they're big into law and order, they mean that, but they're. They're using a much more sophisticated understanding of what law means than I think most people are using, which is to understand it as what it is, which is crystallized class power. Well, and I think they also, you know, they put order last, so it sounds like they're emphasizing law, but they're not. They're emphasizing order, (laughs) which doesn't just mean, like, everyone behaves nicely. It means the rich stay rich Mm -hmm. and in charge no Mm -hmm. matter what. Absolutely. But anyways, (laughs) so, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to point this out because I just think it stands in in such stark contrast to, Mm -hmm. you know, what we hear from the media, which is crime, 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 crime. And it's all about fake things or about people responding desperately to the horrific socioeconomic conditions that we throw everyone into in this society with absolutely no supports for anyone. Instead, the real wage theft that's actually hurting people, that that's the actual organized theft rings that are going on. And yet, in that case, we know who the suspects are, we know where they are, we know where they're operating, and yet they remain at large. You know, I'm looking at these notes here, and it says the company denied any wrongdoing and claimed to be baffled by the charges. Yes. They were, like, uh, hold on, what part were they baffled by? Well, no, because this is the thing. If 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 the DOL is just going to send out a letter and not actually do a fine, then the company has it has no reason to admit wrongdoing. They can just be like, "This must be a weird spreadsheet error. <laughs> the, the Department of Labor's Excel broke." And what? And who's going to contradict them? The Department of Labor just said the case is closed. They're done. They don't want to hear any more about it. So mm-hmm. they're just letting them off scot free. They're basically saying, "Do it again." Yeah, that's like. Yeah, that's not even that's that's lower than an OSHA fine. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, it, it, this is as close as as you're gonna get from the current form of the administrative state to a letter saying like, "No, you don't have any rights, you fucking pleb, and don't write us mm-hmm. again, or we're gonna throw you in jail." <laughs> yeah, jeez. So. Anyways, if we want to move from one depressing story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, speaking of running counter to media narratives and responding to horrific things that we see every day and people risking possibly being thrown in jail, let's talk about the workers who are standing up for Palestine and doing the right thing. 
in good God, uh, the United fucking States, mm-hmm. uh, the worst country in the world. So after four months of watching one of the worst genocides in recent memory, and I mean, like this one, it's hard to say. It's hard to rank genocides, but watching an incredibly uh, mm-hmm. upsetting thing happening on the international scale, we finally reached the point where unions representing a majority of the labor movement in the United States have now joined the call for a ceasefire. Last Friday, the CWA issued a statement calling for an end to the violence. Their statement was quite weak, rather equating the violence of October 7th with the genocide of 30,000 people. Tuesday, January 30, we also saw the AFT join the call for a ceasefire with a similarly weak statement. UFCW Local 367 in Seattle also issued a statement calling for a ceasefire this week as well. Neither official statement really addresses the historical context, but while each has its issues, both are very mainstream unions and their statements show how far the discourse has shifted. The 1.7 million member AFT brought the total number of workers in unions calling for a ceasefire over 7 million, a majority of unionized workers in this country, and no small slice of just people overall yeah. in a country of less than 400 million. Yeah, So and, and like... I don't want to seem overly petty by complaining about the nature of the statements because I, I like I, I'm glad the AFT called for a ceasefire. I'm glad the CWA mm-hmm. called for a ceasefire. I don't want to sound like we're being shitty to them for that, but like the, when you actually read the statements, like it's it's basically like we we call for for peace uh, everywhere. <laughs> like it, there's no acknowledgement of the disparity in 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 the horror at all whatsoever and and that is and i i don't want to sound like we're nitpicking but that is a problem because like if you can't acknowledge that like there's a genocide going on and it's only being done to one group of people then you're not really calling for the situation to change yeah i mean i just wouldn't even call that a nitpick because i feel like you could you know, retroactively apply the same argument to Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. And it would be pretty reasonable and most people would agree with you. So, but you know, I don't know people who seem to love history sure have an awful (laughs) hard time translating it into modern day events. So, yeah. So, but all that to say, I've said my complaints. I am very glad Mm -hmm. that the CW and the AFT, I was surprised. I, I like, there's so many locals in the AFT who have called for a ceasefire long ago with very strong statements. It's same in the NEA. Um, um, tons of teachers have been on this from the jump, but the AFT like national leadership has been like one of the most staunchly liberal Zionist, like in, in the, in the U S labor movement now, like not, the hardcore super far right wing, but still like, you know, supporting the, the colonial state of Israel. And so like, even where I have my issues with the statement, the fact that the CWA and the AFT national leadership are now on the ceasefire, uh, call is a big shift in, in, in like, not just in the discourse, but again, that's the rep that represents 7 million people. And it also represents, I think really importantly, when we really are looking at the mechanism of action here, or the hard work over the last four months of those members, the rank and file within these unions, within the CWA, within the AFT, to push and keep pushing and keep protesting and keep demanding that their union call for a ceasefire, even when they get into situations with 
their fellow union members who may push back on them. So, you know, like even where, you know, I, I wish the statement was stronger, I really, I really mm -hmm. want to applaud the, the rank and file members for their hard and ongoing uh, struggle to, to push their, their organizations on the right side of history. Yeah, it does represent a really big shift just in the labor movement in general. And we did get some stronger statements. I mean, in one, uh, faculty at the University of Michigan voted on Monday the 29th to demand that the university administration divest from any companies profiting from Israel's genocide in Gaza. This powerful call focuses on an immediate, actionable, significant demand and references the university's past decisions to divest from South Africa in the 1980s after massive student protests and from Russia in 2022. Notably not after massive student protests. <laughs> yeah, I mean, notably after bourgeois pressure to do so. But like Russia is kind of like not... That's a different kind of situation that I don't yeah, really want to get into right now. <laughs> no, the important like we don't need to get into all the politics <laughs> yeah. about that. But it, but no, the point is that it's like, look, you you can divest from a com yes. from a country. You showed us you can. You did it two years ago with a country significantly larger and more integrated in the world economy than Israel. So like, yes. the the argument that it, that that these sorts of divestment calls are either unfeasible or or like out of bounds political in some way right. or like not even in keeping with practice of academic institutions. All not true. Sure. Mm hmm. And then we also saw in Canada on Thursday, February 1st, Canadian workers once again took direct action, shutting down the port of Vancouver to demand the Canadian government end its complicity in the genocide. Workers blockaded both of the port's truck gates, preventing any goods from moving in or out of Canada's busiest port. Protesters invoked the ICJ ruling, which ordered all countries not to enable genocidal acts in Gaza. Canada is violating this order by providing weapons, so the workers decided to enforce the ruling themselves. Several Punjabi truck drivers who protesters spoke to at the port joined the blockade in solidarity. Kind of reminds me of that time the Italian trade union found a bunch of weapons uh, that mm -hmm. were on their way to Ukraine, and they were like, uh, nope. We're not doing this. Fuck yeah. you. Shutting it down. Well, and the other thing, though, that I love, too, is that it's like this is yet another action because we've seen this at other port blockades, too, where and I, this is where the protesters, you know, they did the right thing. They didn't just block the port. They went and talked to the right. truck drivers, recognizing it's like, you know, the truck drivers are your fellow workers, too. And yeah, maybe you're going to run into a reactionary one who's not going to give you the time of day, but it's like. You should talk to them and make the case because time after time after time, we've seen workers like turn around or join the blockade themselves once, you know, folks actually reached out to them. And so, like, I think this is is, is awesome and like really good to see that like the mm -hmm. very people who are being impacted by the blockade were like, oh, you're doing this to stop a genocide? Cool. No issue. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and it also shows the way in which, you know, the in this case, the law, or at least the way the ICJ uh, had a ruling, it has to be enforced by the working class mm -hmm. people. Exactly. Like, the state is not going to change their methods because they are, it's not exactly in their interest. They want to maintain power and they want to try to have that, that, uh, hold inside the Middle East to create regional war. Uh, and I mean, also, I mean, in Canada and Montreal, they've been blocking railways. I mean, mm -hmm. like, there's been a bunch of different actions. And so it's really good to see all of these things going on to to really uphold the fact that uh the world is saying end this fucking genocide mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it also kind of shatters a misconception about like stereotypes about an industry too, that truckers are all like old racist white guys, Mm -hmm. which is not true. A lot of truckers are immigrant workers, particularly Sikhs. Um, seem to drive a lot of trucks based on the demographics. So, like, you know, it's it might not be your racist uncle in the cab. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. And even if it is, that guy might still listen to you. Who fucking knows? So, well, right, um, yeah, because that's the other thing is, like, <laughs> look, there's certainly, you're not going to win over everybody. And right. there's folks who are deeply invested who you're not going to get through with reasonable arguments. But unless, you, but if you don't know, you got to at least talk to your fellow workers and not just, you know, necessarily assume <laughs> that they're right. not going to listen to this stuff. Right. And we've also heard uh, writers who continue to speak out as well. When PEN America, P-E-N America, which is a not an NGO ostensibly dedicated to fighting censorship, decided to host ardent Zionist and supporter of the genocide of Palestinian writers, Mayim Bialik, Writers Against the War in Gaza members disrupted the event, playing the names of writers murdered by the occupation forces since October 7th. In response, Penn Security literally dragged Palestinian writer Rhonda Gerard out of the room in her chair. On social media, the group stated, quote, with delusional liberal aplomb, at Pen America, tagging the group, claims objectivity while platforming genocidal Zionists and sal- silencing Palestinians like Rhonda Gerard, who enact the free speech Penn claims to stand for. Penn has also been silent on the IOF's targeting of journalists and censorship of English language media agencies, which are banned from reporting without prior approval from its propaganda unit. Outside this fortress of hypocrisy, real art and writing flourished at a vigil for martyred Palestinians. Participants played the words of Rafat Alarir and lit candles next to photos of Shireen Abu Akla. End quote. And I saw like so many self-satisfied idiots responding to this by being like, well, look, they're an anti-censorship organization. You're trying to censor them. And it's just like, they're platforming somebody who is cheerleading the murder of other writers. It, mm-hmm. Not platforming that person is not censorship. It's it's like it's justice. Like I don't know how to explain that to, to people. Like at a certain point, you have to just be like the person advocating for like the murder of other members of this org is probably not somebody whose opinion should be valued in any way. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, also, I mean, one of the, uh, there's an acronym used in there, the IOF, which is I uh, sometimes the way that it is used to replace like the IDF, because honestly, it's the occupation por- forces, the right. Israeli occupation forces. And so if you yeah. see that around, that's what that means. Well, you know, it's the same trick we play in the United States with the Department of Defense, which used to uh-huh. be the Department of War, which Much at least honest. is an honest fucking name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, also, uh, when we talked last week about the the UAW members who were, had stood up against, you know, Joe Biden in the after the administration had uh, had endorsed him, uh, we actually have a little bit of a follow up on that when uh, it ca- when it came to how they had spoke out because Max Alvarez of the Real News on Breaking Points actually did a little interview segment with them and one of the things that they talked about was uh, the fact that and they were they were academic workers who were actually new to the union i mean relatively new and but they said that 
just because that they were the ones kind of leading this, uh, it didn't actually indicate any sort of divide in the union Mm -hmm. because while they were there, they had people supporting them from every single one of the UAW industries. And they had been consistently chanting through the entire event and there were consistently people supporting, but that when it came to this particular uh, situation where then the members came up and were shouting UAW over them and the people were dragged out, uh, they, they kind of said that this was a matter of respectability politics because the members themselves were intimidated by, and honestly, they, they really spoke very heavily on this, like culture of fear around the respecting of the office of the president. And and I think that that is something that was a really apt thing to point out when it comes to uh, the way that our culture works in this, uh, again, use of respectability politics of you have to respect the president. And I mean, this doesn't excuse the members themselves who, you know, shouted over the members demanding a ceasefire while Biden was um, speaking. But it does really point us in the direction of where the ideological like programming that led to that counteraction by the members against the it, while I'm sure some of them even supported these people who were doing education uh, came about. And I, I think that that's just something really important that was worth bringing up as a follow-up this week to that story last week. I've always been so baffled by this arbitrary need to respect the office of the president, regardless of who's in it. Because it's like, you know, even outside of the fact that the presidency is just an evil office, just in, that's the nature of the office. It's like, do you think if we st- all collectively stop believing in the presidency that it w- like won't exist? It'll just go like, poof. <laughs> it's a product <laughs> of faith. <laughs> yeah, it's like it works well, on the American gods logic. Well, I mean, <laughs> so it's it's silly when you say that literally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you basically just described the process of dissolving hegemony. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what they're afraid of right now because so much of their ideology is being exposed by reality. <laughs> and that's why they're lashing out so hard against protests right now. So they are afraid that if we stop believing in them, <laughs> that they'll disappear because they just might. <laughs> but that, isn't that the contradiction? It's that it's their efforts to force us to believe in them that provide the basis on which we would stop believing in them. So their activity only reinforces their own downfall. Anyway. The bourgeoisie <laughs> are their own grave diggers. Okay, Carl <laughs> Allen Poe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, I'm really glad that you mentioned, you know, what they said about there's no, re- there isn't that divide, you know, between the academic workers in the UAW and like the, the folks who work in the auto plants. Because that is one of those annoying constructs that gets brought up constantly in reference to anything the UAW does, where anything the UAW does that somebody doesn't like, they're like, this happened because of the grad students, because it's not (laughs) real auto workers and all this other stuff, which is always very funny because it's like, because they, they, it's, it's, it's contradictory because you had people saying this about like the only reason Sean Fain got elected is because of all these, this flood of, of, of new like liberal, blue-haired grad students (laughs) and you have those same people claiming that the only people in the union protesting fame are the 
grad students, the overeducated liberal, you know, blue haired. I'm like, which one is it? It can't be both those things. Pick I one. Mean, Pick one of your lies and be they'll, consistent. They'll say anything they want about the fucking grad students. They'll go out there and be like, these grad students are asking for less money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like just nonsense. Like, <laughs> and and well, and, and I think that they also. I mean, it's so easy to forget that the. Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm actually partially going to be a, a, a purveyor of this in a certain sense because I don't know what the full uh, like name of the UAW is right off the top of my head. But it's just, it's not just United Auto mm-hmm. Workers. If you actually look at the whole name, it includes a lot more people. Than yeah, that. there's a few other things. Yeah, it's like well, because the UE has like radio and machine workers in it too i think Uh um but uh no and i don't just want to point out the the inconsistency there because it's funny but it's not when we point it out it doesn't really affect their their they just keep doing doubling down on it but i wanted to mention it too because i also think it's important that we don't like accidentally buy into that sort of stuff and and because it's like every one of those grad worker uh, members of the UAW is just as important and just as much of a worker as any other member. It, it, that's the whole, that's the beauty of workers organizations is we're mm-hmm. all workers. That's, that's why we're in this organization together because we have shared economic interests as a class. And so like, I think that really emphasizing that it's not one segment of the union that is fighting so hard to hold it to its moral principles and fight for a ceasefire. It's people from every part of the UAW. Like Max, you know, he interviewed some folks who were newer members, but there's tons of auto workers who have have been in this fight a long time. And so like, I, I'm really glad that they're helping debunk the idea that there's like two UAWs and they're, they're different and that somehow the grad student workers, the academic workers are in any way lesser. Well, and even then, I mean, the it, it's also important to point out that it, while, you know, imagine it was just the academic work. It wasn't. It literally mm-hmm. wasn't just the academic workers because they they were literally there and all of the different sectors of the UAW were on on board with the ceasefire demands and learning about the history of Palestine. It's just, you know, for some people, it does take a little bit more education because so many people are in getting all of this mainstream news where, you know, CNN is putting their their news programs together based on literal, like, Israel's, uh, you know, outlines. Well, they run everything through the IDF. It's fucked. Um, yeah. And that's not just an accusation that's been shown to be true. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think The Intercept has a has a recent article about it. Ken Klippenstein's been talking about it. Um, but, uh, you know, but I'm really, really glad. No, I was going to say, but yeah, let's keep talking about the UAW in our next story. Yeah, no, exactly, because that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm really glad that there are still so many UAW members that are continuing to fight for this and to keep this struggle alive because, you know, for all of our very many criticisms of that one action of the UAW, the union continues to be arguably the most dynamic labor organization out there. So once again, we have our now weekly segment on the UAW update to go over for all the cool shit in the labor realm that the union has been doing. Um, and so we've got a bunch of stories about the UAW to cover it, uh, to start with some, some real good news that really, emphasizes the the union difference 
and, and, and what you can have with a union that you aren't really going to get otherwise, which was the announcement of this year's profit-sharing checks for workers at GM. And <laughs> this past week, we got the announcement that, that the 45,000 workers uh, in the UAW at GM uh, will be getting profit-sharing checks of about $12,000 this year. <laughs> wow. Damn. You know, I see a lot of people out there trying to play the lotto, and they get excited when they win 50 bucks. Let me tell you what's a much better use of your time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and you know, it's it, I always feel weird characterizing these checks because it's like it, it feels like when we talk about it because of how we're conditioned on these things, like it's a bonus. But really what it is is it is you have clawed back something that was stolen from you. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. the way that getting lump sums is an interesting thing because it can mean a lot of things. It depends on the value of the lump sum. And in particular, it depends on how that value was arrived at and where it's coming from. And when you establish that this is profit sharing, and so we are looking at the overall profits of the company, and we're saying we are entitled to a section of that, that doesn't just represent like, you know, $12,000. That's some real fucking walking around money. Mm -hmm. But also like this represents that they are taking a direct interest in the stakes of the company as an organized body of workers. And that's a... That's almost a political move that, like, really, I think, bodes incredibly well for the future of any organization able to do it. Yeah, well, and I mean, UAW Vice President Mike Booth, who's head of their GM department, really, I, I think, echoed that point where, as part of this announcement where he said, quote, As always, our membership performed beyond all expectations. It is our members' skillfulness that made this profit possible as they produce the finest products in the world right here in the USA. These profits do not happen without the great work and dedication of our membership, end quote. And that is 100% correct. And, mm -hmm. But I, I really want to emphasize that something else that this story gives us, which is a window into exactly how exploited American workers are. Because I think, you know, one of the things that uh, young Marxists at least may, may get a misinterpretation on is that because the U.S. is such an exploitative empire, that American workers maybe aren't as exploited as in other places. No, 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 no. <laughs> because those $12,000 checks, fantastic as they are, are the result of GM getting profits of $12 billion, which when you divide that up amongst, you know, the 45,000 workers would still be an enormous, like it's an, like that 12,000 is just a drop in the bucket. Like, because for perspective, the workers are getting that $12,000. The company is getting in pure profits per worker over $200,000. So that's really the comparison we're looking at here. It's, it, is that with a union, the workers were able to get back $12,000 of that money that they produced, which that, that can be like a life-changing amount of money. That's a shitload of money. Mm -hmm. And yet the company is still taking 20 times that in profits while they're doing basically nothing. Because again, that's just on profits. That's already taking out, you know, what you had to spend for capital funds and all this other things. And so like a union gets us to the part where we can fight. 
a revolution gets us to the part where we don't get this shit stolen from us anymore. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, right. So, but that same day as the GM profit sharing announcement, uh, Tuesday, January 30th, we got another big good news story from the UAW when 400 workers at Antolin Interiors USA, an auto parts supplier providing instrument panels to the big three just outside Detroit, announced that they had voted in overwhelmingly in favor of joining the UAW as well, specifically Local 163. And we heard from uh, worker James Matheny, a materials worker there, who said, quote, our members chose to organize after many losses to the company. We lose eight hours per week of our weekly total if we have a single day off or even a holiday. Favoritism is rampant and policy is manipulated. We are now union brothers and sisters. We can fight for a fair contract and work with the company so we all succeed, end quote. And while I may have a minor abstract quibble on the work with the company thing, all the rest of that, great shit. (laughs) That's right. But in addition, of course, to, you know, continuing to organize within the supply chains of the big three, obviously one of the biggest organizing stories in recent memory has been the attempts by the UAW ongoing to now organize the entire non-union auto sector in the United States. And part of that, as that we've been talking about recently, has been the organizing by auto workers at Mercedes-Benz outside Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And in the weeks since that drive was announced, boy, has the local ruling class got real mad. (laughs) Uh, and, And they've gotten so spooked that they've launched into a brazen open assault on the rights of workers to organize. Uh, local business owners and their paid politicians have launched a glossy anti-union website, Alabama strong, full of all the classic (laughs) union busting lies. And, but they're not just doing, you know, it's not just the Chamber of Commerce getting in on this, who, who you'd expect, that, that basically this is why they exist, to prevent unions from forming. But it's not just them, you know, their politicians are getting really directly involved. You know, as reported by AL.com, Alabama's Commerce Secretary, Ellen McNair, said publicly, quote, The days of Alabama being a premier destination for industry investment may be coming to an end, end quote. And Governor Cat Ivey claimed that because of the union drive, that the state's, quote, model for economic success is under attack, end quote. Wow, Alabama. That kind of sounds like what you were saying during the fucking Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, no, because that's the thing. I, I love seeing some of these because, like, it tells us so much. Because, mm-hmm. like, because this is the thing. There's like... The UAW organizing at Mercedes is putting our model of economic success under attack. I'm like, you realize that people hear you say those things, and and people can think about your statement for more than five seconds. Yeah. Oh my God, he admitted. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I'm like, you're just saying that your model of economic success in the biggest quotes in the fucking world is based entirely on paying your workers shitty wages. Like, you're not supposed to say that part out loud. <laughs> it, and it's, it's, it's fucking wild. But I think ultimately it's, it's also good because, again, this is, it falls into, you know, the Mao's, one of his famous aphorisms, you know, to be attacked by the enemy is a good thing, not a bad mm-hmm. thing. And I think the, the open and brazen involvement of the, the politicians here shows that Mercedes is worried about this drive and they really think they need to call in favors and help 
from anybody that they possibly can. Because this is the sort of thing where if you do it too hard, if you like, it can be very obvious to the workers involved. They're like, why the fuck is the governor talking about this shit? <laughs> like we work here, she doesn't. Like why is she getting involved? And that you know starts to reveal a lot more things. And so, and the thing is in response, workers have not been intimidated. And not just the workers at Mercedes-Benz, because the day after that, the Commerce Secretary's comments about how, oh, Alabama's not going to be a premier destination, well, the UAW announced another major organizing drive in Alabama had hit 30% of workers signed up, this time at Hyundai in Montgomery. And the UAW's outreach department continues to just absolutely uh, kill it here. Where uh, So we've got a clip that we are going to listen to right now uh, from the UAW's announcement of the drive at Hyundai in Montgomery. Welcome to Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, where Dr. King first preached. Montgomery, Alabama, the city where Rosa Parks sat down, and the city where thousands of Hyundai workers are ready to stand up. 20 years ago, Hyundai opened their first U.S. plant here in Montgomery. A foreign company got a quarter of a billion dollars in American taxpayer money. And we got promised good, safe jobs. 20 years later, we're still waiting. Hyundai's profits are through the roof. While we're some of the lowest paid auto workers in the country, we make the cars. But we can't afford the bother. We put in a sweat, but we don't see the profits. Hyundai makes billions while Alabama auto workers fall behind. They've always tried to divide us, but we're standing together. They told us to wait our turn, but we're done waiting. We're done waiting. We're done waiting. For years now, I have heard the word wait. This wait has almost always meant never. Hyundai workers can't wait. Our families can't wait. Montgomery can't wait. We're ready to stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And long I will be with you. Even at the end These videos are just so good. They really are. The like I'm I'm so impressed consistently with all of the the new ways in which unions and, and labor in general has been putting together these like mini documentaries. Like like they're just obviously they're like similar to, you know, other like easily consumable social media, but the the production quality is great, the messaging is great. Uh also just like banger quotes in there from Martin Luther King. Uh, and we got to see a guy whose name was Gator Cook. <laughs> that is one of the sickest names I've ever seen in my life. Well, hell yeah! And I love that the the UAW has really hit on what you know. I think we might thought think of as like an obvious thing to put forward, but what has I think made their communication strategy so effective is that it, what it's rooted in is it's just let the workers themselves explain their own exploitation. Like what could be more compelling than that? And, 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 and just providing 
the the perfect framework for them to do it in with with great you know catchy music and everything and and so i think that they've really hit on a really good like mass popular strategy for this sort of communication stuff and it's great yeah, it's mm-hmm. pretty easy to uh send someone a one minute and 45 second video where then they're just like wait a minute these are all this is that's not an outside entity that those are my coworkers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, we heard more from the workers themselves directly, too, about uh, the conditions at Hyundai in Montgomery. There was an interview with Status Coup News where workers called out Hyundai for forcing them to work 12-hour shifts from 6 to 6 every day uh, and, and then instituting a two-tier wage system in 2020 when their profits were already through the roof, which, like, that's a new level of bullshit because, like, the big three, like had to be basically bankrupt to force through a tiered wage system. Hyundai, because there's no union and because the government is so anti-union and anti-worker, fucking imposed a, a wage tier just on a whim. Just like, oh, what if we just decided we're not going to pay new people anything anymore? All right, let's do that. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. And so like, uh, and then in a press release from the union, workers spoke out uh, as well. Uh, worker Dwayne Naylor, who's a, c- a quality control worker in the body shop, said, quote, my oldest son works at the plant over on General Assembly, GA. I went through 14 years in GA, and I know what it'll do to your body over there. I don't want the younger generation to go through what we did. Over the last 10 years, most of my raises have been just 12 or 13 cents an hour. The price of their cars, they go up every year, but my pay don't. If we don't get the union here, our pay will never keep up. End quote. 12 or 13 cents an hour in a raise. Mm-hmm. That, especially looking at the raises that the UAW workers got in the last contract. Mm-hmm. Like 12 or 13 dollars. It's, I mean, for one, we already know that that is not a, a raise. That is a, that is a wage cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Beyond that, it's not not only a wage cut, but it's also a slap in the face to these people who are putting in all of this really hard work. Oh, and who are damaging their bodies, like he says in the quote, you know, like when he says, I know what it does. I know what it'll do to your body over there. Like you have to imagine I've worked hard jobs, but I've never assembled a fucking car. Good lord. Well, and I and, and and I mean we that was one of the things that we talked about, you know, when we were when we were talking about the uh the stand-up strike was we mm-hmm. you know, we heard from so many workers who have been at this for years and years and how it completely destroys your body. And and, and that's one of the things though that <laughs> I think one of the things that I've always just loved so much about the labor movement that sticks out to me so much is really emphasized in his what he said in that quote. And it's so simple, and yet it is a state, it is a sentiment that we do not hear from very many people in power, which is, I don't want the younger generation to go through what we did. We hear the fucking opposite of that from so many people in power, which is, I went through this bullshit, so you should have to, too. And that has always stuck with me, which I'm like, then what are we doing? Like, what is the point of, like, society, life, having a civilization at all if we're just like everyone always has to go through the same bullshit and nothing gets any better? And it's the labor movement that is really the engine for creating the possibility that our descendants don't have to go through the awful bullshit that we went through and that they will have a better life. And I think that it's so important to hear from folks who get that intuitively. And are putting that into practice through their organizing. 
Yeah, well, and I mean, to talk about the idea that uh, things do have to stay bad, we do have to make a, a little, I mean, in the announcement of the drive at Hyundai in Montgomery, it came alongside an announcement from the UAW that they now had over 10,000 non-union auto workers sign union cards in less than 90 days since the stand-up strike. But what I was alluding to was uh, how it is not that difficult to see how uh, someone like Elon Musk uh, uh, ends up telling the the Tesla workers that they are going to end up having to, quote, sleep on the line, end quote, to meet production quotas. That's the kind of thing that we, like what Dan was alluding to with, from the ruling class, uh, oh, things were bad and they're going to stay bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so. they're gonna get they're gonna get worse because not only are you gonna have to sleep on the line, you're gonna have to listen to Elon Musk tell you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No yeah. kidding. Well, and then also talking about how there's this attempt to make things worse, we actually are gonna move to an international story about Finland, one of the great social democracies of the world. <laughs> but uh, so Workers in Finland actually have launched a general strike this week for two days in protest of the government's plan to gut many critical labor protections. On Thursday and Friday this past week, nearly 300,000 Finnish workers, accounting for 13% of the nation's entire workforce, went on strike, shuttering a huge swath of of Finland's economy. Flights, trains, and buses were left immobilized with no crews to man them. The mail ceased to move as the postal unions walked out. Fuel refineries shut their valves. And even the roar of chainsaws from unionized forestry workers fell silent. 15,000 protested in the capital of Helsinki alone. These protests come in response to plans by the government to cap wage increases for workers in export industries, making it easier for companies to fire people, slash unemployment benefits, and strip workers of the right to conduct sympathy strikes. The last item, I mean, which is obviously a major desire for the capitalists, is a core issue at play, allowing workers to shut down Tesla, as we were just referring to a moment ago, for refusing to bargain with its mechanics. And, I mean, if sympathy strikes are banned, the workers will lose a huge avenue that they have for political agency, which we know in the United States is something that we don't have, and Mm -hmm. it is a crippling factor. Yeah, like... (laughs) If you want to use U.S. labor history as like a advice for like any specific policy, uh, one of the ones towards the top is that like protect the ability to do sympathy strikes at all costs, and like and if they ban them, do them anyway. Like it's so corrosive to working class solidarity to watch folks be like, "Look, I would love to stand with you, but sympathy strikes are illegal." And like, look, I and and this is not faulting anybody. Who's, who's like, well, I can't lose my job. I get it. I'm not faulting the individual there. It's that, like, if you're in a situation like the workers in Finland where you have the ability to do legal sympathy strikes, you have the right to sympathy strikes, protect that at all costs. And that's what we're seeing, you know, from the workers with these massive strikes, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a quote here from Jarko Elantra, the president of Finland's largest union association, SAK, who told Reuters, quote, The government's plan is cold-blooded. First, the right to strike will be severely restricted, and then tough cuts are pushed through, end quote. 
The government claims that the protests have no legitimacy because of their election last year, but workers are pointing out that at no point during the campaigning of the current quote-unquote democratically elected government uh, and their campaign, did they ever mention their proposal to gut labor law, which is, I mean, very revealing to what their actual goals were. And I mean, this was actually reported by Telesur. And I think that, you know, that it's it's super uh, important to not only like bring up the fact that like, sure, they're lying or they, they like hid the fact that their agenda was something menacing. But also, I think that it is also better to kind of point to the illegitimacy of these quote-unquote democracies as they don't allow the actual participation of the people through the daily process, through the through the uh, overall goings-on. Because clearly, uh, with, all, with a general strike called, that's democratic. You're hearing from so many people. You're hearing from the workers themselves, don't take our fucking rights away. Well, and yeah, there's this... <laughs> You you see the whole thing where this is there's this appeal where it's like we have we have elections which means therefore we're a democracy which that's already a big leap, but like and that therefore and that and this then this is the biggest leap, and that therefore anything the government does has democratic legitimacy and it's like no, <laughs> it's not true, like uh, uh, you don't just get to be like my republic is automatically legitimized because of the fact that I had an election three years ago like no. <laughs> Absolutely not. There are a there are a myriad of ways in which the the will of the people can be communicated. Elections are simply one of them. Another one, perhaps a bit louder and perhaps a bit more disruptive to the day to day goings on of of Finland's rulers, is a big ass strike. That's right. <laughs> so like the idea that the strike is anti democratic, I'm like, well, I see a shitload of people all being like, we all believe the same thing and we're out here to make it clear. And then I see like a bunch of like politicians, there's a lot less of them, and they're the ones pushing these things. I'm like, well, which one of these is more democratic? Like <laughs> it seems pretty clear that it's the workers. And again, yeah. and, and like you were saying, it's like th- that is all taking place within the context of a society that allows individuals to control huge swaths of the means of production. Even in a social democratic country like Finland, you still have people with a massive outsized influence on the state because they are capitalists with enormous amounts of wealth. And so as long as that exists, pretty hard to really see those elections as the only or even any legitimate form of democracy right well in this new government itself i mean these moves are not exactly surprising because they're actually moving to end finland's decades-long neutrality and join nato and their axis of genocide as they are working to tear apart the social democratic labor law system that had been built through years and years of class struggle by the finnish workers themselves and it's also important to remember that as long as capitalism is the dominant mode of production as dan was saying this democracy will remain in a effective if no working class reform is permanently won through well what we might suggest you know as we've done many times <laughs> well yeah it's like well you got the big ass strike i mean you've shown you have the power why not you got like 90 percent of the workers in the unions why, why don't you just take it come on yeah <laughs> this is me like that's the meme with a stick <laughs> Dude, come kidding. on seize worker power come that's on right. do it <laughs> 
Come on, do it. You won't. What are you, chicken? <laughs> yeah. I double dog dare you. <laughs> yeah, come but on. The gover- <laughs> but the government appears to be dead set on these attacks on workers. So union leaders say that industrial action will continue. Hell this yeah. week, medical workers and hospital staff will walk out, expanding the strike and underlining that these attacks on workers' rights affect every sector of the Finnish economy and society, and that there is going to be no putting up with such bullshit. Hell yeah. Love to see it. Solidarity with the Finnish workers. This is exactly how you should respond to these sorts of attacks, you know, uh, from the government on labor rights. So this this rules, and I hope that these protests are are able to demonstrate to uh, to Finland's ruling class that these sorts of changes are not the sorts of things they should be trying to do. Yeah. Uh, well, and also, otherwise, perhaps maybe it is time to advance the cool zone a few more stages. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. Uh, and also, I mean, demonstrating uh, something very cool, but also Dan's anger. I want to pass this next story to him because I'm uh, certain that he's got a lot of things to say about it. Well, I mean, I was a lot more mad about this story before the teachers won. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, but so, I mean, yeah, like the well, aspects of it that are infuriating are, yeah. are still worth bringing up. So, what Lena is alluding to, our final story for for this this week's episode is, you know, we're following up with the Newton teacher strike, which, as somebody who lives in New England, has been getting a shitload of press from some very awful people. <laughs> uh, and so I want to talk about it a bit because, you know, one of the most militant groups of organized workers for a very long time, especially in the last couple of decades uh, in the United States, has been teachers because they're not just fighting for their working conditions, the, their families and, and their coworkers, which is a, a, you know more than enough reason to fight for something, but they're also fighting for the conditions for their students and really for their whole community more broadly. And so the the strike by teachers in Newton, Massachusetts that we first talked about a couple weeks ago is the latest in a long history of teachers defying repressive laws to demand better learning conditions for all. Because, you know, as we mentioned a couple episodes when this strike began, Massachusetts is often mistakenly touted as a bastion of progressivism and workers' rights and things like that. Not true at all. Uh, Massachusetts bans all public worker strikes like many other states do. I think Rhode Island does too. Um, it's fucked, but we have recently seen a lot more teachers unions willing to risk the fines and legal attacks by the state in order to say, fuck your bullshit law. We're going on strike because we need to go on strike because we need to secure the conditions that, you know, we need to be able to teach and that students need to be able to learn. And so this past week, as the strike stretched into its second week, which made it already the longest teacher strike, I believe, in state history, at the very least in decades, uh, you know, resolve on the picket line remained firm, but attacks began to mount from the state and their corporate media outlets, like, for instance, the source for most of the things in this story, uh, the Boston Globe. (laughs) Because, you know, Despite the fact that Newton, which is one of the wealthiest suburbs of Boston, has more money than it could, or has access at least to more money than it really would ever be able to know what it could do with, the liberal establishment in the area has launched increasing attacks on the teachers for daring to expect that their wages should rise with inflation. Just a ridiculous, ludicrous thing to think that your your wage should not go down year after year. (laughs) 
And again, you know, we talked about before that there was a tax increase that was rejected by voters, but there's a ton of ways that the district could increase their budget, but they'd rather attack the people who do the vital job of educating the students instead. And they attack them quite directly. In, in the first week alone, the state fined the Newton Teachers Association $375,000 and continued to fine them $50,000 every day that the strike went on last week. And the teachers had been at the bargaining table every day, but the state over and over and over again refused to accept a fair deal that teachers could live on and provide good learning conditions for their students. Meanwhile, though, teachers spoke out, you know, in, in the much smaller text font that the Boston Globe would put the article listening to them about, whereas then the big one attacking them is in gigantic text. <laughs> but in that, where they were actually, you know, spoken to, the workers talked about the fact that they've had to spend thousands of dollars of their own money to make sure that the kids in their classroom have enough to eat. And some of the teachers talked about being forced to commute from 90 minutes away in New Hampshire, a different state, uh, because the cost of living is so high in the Newton area. One former Newton teacher explained that she was forced to leave the profession that she loves as a teacher because the stress from the massive overwork and the lack of pay that she was getting impacted her health so severely that she had to start wearing a heart monitor and the doctors that she went to told her that the stress from her job was causing permanent health damage. This is that that's that's absurd. Like mm -hmm. teaching children can be a bit of a pain in the ass because kids can be a pain in the ass. But like that's not that that should be the most of your problems. Oh, my God. No. And it should never be able to like physically affect your health to this degree. I mean, like what we're talking about here is a backslide into straight up poverty for mm -hmm. public employees who teach our children and it's like you know we could be hospitalizing them or you know giving them long-term you know mental anguish or other or other conditions or the worst of all forcing them to live in new hampshire <laughs> <laughs> oh man shout outs to any new hampshire listeners that we have i'm sorry uh, for you having to live in new hampshire uh, <laughs> that's right <laughs> but uh one of the issues that the teachers are fighting for, and that's not fair. I have friends that live in New Hampshire. It's a fine state. <laughs> um, but there, there are no good states. You don't have to hand it to them. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of good people in New Hampshire, at least. I can certainly say that for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, one of the, the key issues that the, the teachers are fighting for beyond just being able to afford to live in the place that they work a uh, wild thing to want to be able to do is parental leave because before the strike, the contract the teachers were on only provided two weeks of parental leave. And when the union came to these negotiations with demand for more that, you know, two weeks of parental leave is not enough. It seems pretty, I think that seems pretty obvious to most people, especially when some countries give you like a year, like Cuba does. Um, the response to the union's demands were, oh, okay, yeah, sure, we can give you more parental leave. Just sign right here and uh, allow us to double your insurance premiums. Uh, That'll be fine, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> also, two weeks, it's a fucking baby. Mm -hmm. It's a baby. Yeah, I love the idea that it's like, really everything you need to know about your new kid, you're going to learn in those first two weeks. The rest of that's all just filler. 
<laughs> like that's basically like the implication there. Yeah. And yeah, it's so it's fucked. And, and, and I think, you know, we had a, a, an appropriate reaction from one Newton teacher, Crystal Powers, who told the Globe, quote, I'm actually angry right now. I don't think parental leave should have any strings attached. I just don't think that is humane. End quote. Exactly. And, is a baby. Crystal, you are. <laughs> and also the 100% parents. 100% correct. Yeah, absolutely right there. And but the thing is, again, these are the things that the, the teachers have been fighting for enough money so they don't have to live in a different state that that the the idea that their kids in their classroom should have enough food to eat and that they should be able if they have a child to be with them for more than two weeks right after they're born and yet the response from the press has been rabid hatred of the teachers uh you know there was that one article where they interviewed the teachers and about a thousand where they interviewed politicians very mad at the teachers or members of the school administration. The, and the, the Globe opened the week with multiple editorials attacking the strike. On Tuesday, January 30th, the Globe editorial board published its own official position uh, doing the weird cowardly thing that, that newspapers do where like, we're, no, it's the whole, the whole editorial board wrote this so that you can't find the one person who wrote the incredibly noxious thing, uh, <laughs> which is... Because it's like, look, there's clearly a divide between individuals. Uh, but of course, the majority is always going to favor pro-capital policies. But by not putting the person who wrote, wrote it on there, they're able to basically remove any sort of individual accountability for writing such horrible things. I don't know. This is just a big pet peeve that I have. Put your name on the shit that you write. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> Especially when your op-ed is titled, quote, Newton teachers should end illegal strike end quote. Uh, here's my article. The paper should stop interfering in Newton teachers exercising their labor rights in the benefit of the entire community. Oh, mm -hmm. got there. But anyways, like this shitty piece rolled out the same classic bullshit, liberal concern, trolling, attacking teachers for depriving students with disabilities of learning time, which stop using people with disabilities as a token to concern troll against people. Like, because if you go actually talk to disabled people, they're not going to be like, I'm so mad that the teachers are on strike. Like, come on. They're, they are just hiding behind people who don't even have the same noxious belief that they have. No, and as the strike went on, they actually had more and more community support, mm -hmm. why, which is one of the things that why they felt such a need to publish all these bullshit articles because they were losing the, the battle. They wanted everyone to hate teachers, and they don't hate teachers. Right, exactly. And, and I just have to include the final line from Boston Globe's op-ed because it was— it, horrible and i'm now going to affect to uh, afflict everyone with it which is quote and ultimately if the state process still doesn't deliver the result the union wants the teachers do have one last recourse elections that's how democracy works end quote what do they mean <laughs> Like, well, look, no, what they mean is, oh, well, the, the, the politicians didn't give you the higher contract you want vote for better politicians. What? But they don't. 
No, I mean, look, the, the whole but thing they, is the, the politicians again, it, don't do shit. Like you can, it doesn't matter. You can get the fucking the squad or whatever. It's like there's still incredible limitations that even their politics reach. Well, and again, their whole thing is the the the, editor, the the Globe editorial board would never accept a political class that would give the teachers a better contract without a strike fight. They they leave that part out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, like we said in the last story, democracy is the rule of the majority. It's not just elections set up in the bourgeois box of impossibility that exists in the United States, specifically to exclude working class movements from power. That is not the definition of democracy. And every minute that anybody accepts that as the definition of democracy, you're just helping our exploiters maintain their own power. And 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 I don't know, I just... I hate the writers who write, who wrote this article, like genuinely huge pieces of shit. Like uh, these teachers are fighting to, you know, make a better world for their students. And you're going to come out here and fucking concern troll them about democracy. Like go fuck yourselves. But I told, I told the listeners, Dan is going to be upset about this one. Well, because that wasn't even like the worst article. Incredibly, because they also did have, and I will say one guy who at least will put his name on on articles, which is Jeff Jacoby, uh, their arch reactionary uh, columnist who came fresh off publishing an article that weekend, which was basically Nazi apologia, where he was basically like, we condemn the Nazis, but why don't we condemn the Soviet Union and communism just as bad? In fact, and then his whole article is like, really, when you think about it, the communists were worse. And I'm like, bro, why don't you just put the 14 words at the beginning of your fucking articles, man? Yeah. Like, it's, it, he like, in the piece, he calls the Soviet Union worse than Hitler. Um, and then decided to come out and, and publish, you know, a piece. I don't know if he necessarily literally said that, but basically he talks about how there, you know, he says like, well, we can take that part out. I don't want to get sued by the globe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyways. Uh, so, the the piece that he was right it's just it's a- absolute horseshit and so he follows that up this like anti-communist piece that is basically rolling out all of the the classic pro-fascist talking points with a new piece uh arguing for all of Newton's teachers to be fired for striking and in an incredibly reactionary falsification of history Jacoby in his article appeals to law and order claiming that firing the pack co-workers was a good thing and allowing the Newton teacher strike to continue quote would also convey a deeply corrosive message that laws intended to protect the public could be flouted with impunity end quote yeah, no, this person's just a straight up fascist. Yeah, I yeah, I just I I like the the Globe is our local major paper, and I cannot tell you how much I hate Jeff Jacoby. Like, it, this is a fundamentally fascist argument because again, slavery was legal, segregation was legal, conversion therapy was, and in some places still is legal, and all those laws that made those things legal and made stopping those things illegal. All those laws were claimed to protect the public. And I don't even know who the fuck today is claiming (laughs) that banning public workers from striking protects the public, or at least any way that any normal person would believe them. And (laughs) that's really what it comes down to when you, you, you base everything in this idea of legalism, where you equate morality with legality and, and, and see no daylight between those two things. Because when you put yourself in that position, then you're going to stand behind every noxious law that this fucking country has. Whereas in reality, with real people, and just like the t- 
teachers recognized, unjust laws are meant to be broken, and the people who break them should be celebrated. And that's exactly why I'm going to celebrate the kick-ass contract <laughs> that the Newton teachers were able to win in spite of all this massive attempts to put their, their thumb on the scale by the Boston press. Let's fucking because go. Because as you were saying, Lena, the community, the actual working class of the Boston area, students and parents, have lined up alongside their fellow workers. The union received overwhelming support during the strike and stated, quote, nothing is going to stop us from doing what's right for the students and educators of Newton and doing what it takes to settle a fair contract, end quote. And I just want to once again, like, applaud the fact that this and this isn't even the first teachers you know we've had like there have been a bunch of teachers unions in Massachusetts recently who have stood up to this bullshit ban on teacher strikes and i i just think that like we so rarely see that and we need to see more of it cuz there are so many of these like horseshit laws that need to be getting rid of and if nobody challenges them then it's going to take forever to get rid of them and this is how you start the ball rolling even even within a capitalist framework. And so like these sorts of strikes are so important. And after two weeks of this very acrimonious strike, you know, it, that finally came to an end this past weekend as the two sides reached a deal for a contract, which was then ratified, I believe today. Today. Um, yeah. And so workers won wage increases of just under 13% over the four year deal, which is lower than the initial demand of 19%, but significantly higher than the offer of under 10%, which the district said could not possibly be increased. They also won higher starting wages for teachers, aides, and substitutes, alongside one time bonuses of $1,000 for those uh, you know, workers who are a little lower paid than some of the other ones. So, again, the continuing to fight for the lowest paid workers among them. But one of the other and biggest wins in here was on that issue of parental leave. Once again, before the strike, the district claimed they could only offer an additional three days on top of those two weeks. Oh, cool, three more days. <laughs> That's it. But however, that too was a lie. And the new contract reveals that that was a lie because it in fact doubles the amount of fully paid parental leave from two weeks to four weeks and allows workers to extend it to 60 days if they have accrued sick time on top of it. So that's just a clear big win for the teacher teachers there, getting double the parental leave and that rules. And then in addition to that too, another one of the social demands that the teachers had had to try and help the students was they won a commitment from the district to hire six new social workers, which will not hit the goal that they had had to have one for each school in Newton, but it's very close. I believe they said there is like two schools that won't have a full-time social worker, but there will be one that like goes between a couple of them. So going from none to these additional six, big win by the teachers there. Now they didn't win hard caps on class sizes, which was, you know, something that they were pushing for instead winning a joint, um, like union and school district committee to discuss ways to shrink classes. But I will say like, I, you know, while that's disappointing, hard, hard caps on class sizes have been really, really difficult for teachers unions to win. Like I'm, I, I don't know if I can remember us seeing that successfully being bargained for in a teacher strike since we started doing this show. Uh, mostly where those have been won, it's been through like uh, ballot measures uh, where like the, the, the teachers union will like lead a campaign to get, you know, the voters to enact them because like in these negotiations, it's, 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 I, the parallel to me uh, is, and I, I, maybe it's just because we're doing the series on the history of the, you know, uh, women in the, in the trade union movement, but 
much like in the late 19th century, one of the main demands unions would have was we need a close shop. We need a close shop. We need a close shop. This demand to me is very similar where the, the, the bosses back then would be like, we're not giving you a close shop. We'll give you fucking anything else though. If you drop the demand, cause we desperately don't want a close shop. And I kind of see the same thing here where they recognize that we do need caps on class sizes, but that would require them to hire more teachers. And they really, really don't want to hire more teachers. And so like, it's, it's tough. And so like, I'm not saying that the union shouldn't keep pushing for it. Really. I think more what it, it points out is how hard the politicians and admins will fight to not hire more teachers and how I would personally prefer a system where that's not one of the core priorities of, of, of my politicians. And, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that a government controlled by workers might actually give us. Yeah. So, um, but you know, Speaking to fellow teachers outside the Newton Education Center, Ryan Normandin, one of the bargaining team members, said, quote, We taught our students not to be afraid that when those in power try to take away your rights, that they should stand up for themselves, that they should not do it alone, but together. We taught every other district in this state what will happen if they try to balance their budgets on the backs of our students and educators, end quote. And, you know, I just... It's so funny because these are the sorts of strikes that the press is like, oh, this strike was the worst. It was terrible. I, we're so glad it's over. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it was arduous and, and, and a pain in the ass for the teachers. But the teachers fucking won this strike. And it's been mm -hmm. so funny watching the local media try and pretend that they didn't. <laughs> because they're, they'll have a thing they're like, you know, the strike's over, but were there really any winners? And then under it is a headline that's like, <laughs> politicians say attempts to legalize teacher strikes definitely dead. And I'm like, well, you just answered the question if anyone won the strike. The teachers won the strike mm -hmm. because the politicians are that fucking mad about it. And that's always a good sign. <laughs> Yeah, clearly. And I mean, in uh, something that you can, uh, I don't know, post online to make some people mad, possibly, or I mean, probably just garner a bunch of likes from your comrades. Uh, we got a bunch of uh, silly images in our weekly segment, the meme review. <laughs> yeah, this opens up with one that's near and dear to my heart, which is the uh, myth of Sisyphus meme format. And this one's really simple. It just has Sisyphus pushing the boulder and it's labeled non-union job. And then in the second panel, it has multiple Sisyphes <laughs> pushing the boulder. I don't know how to pluralize that name. Sisyphuses. Yeah, Sisyphi, because that's always the fun one to end on. Uh, pushing the boulder up the mountain, and it says union job. And I love this because it's like, it doesn't actually change the nature of what a job is, is that it's shitty and awful and the boulder's going to roll back down the hill. But it's so much less horrible to push it up that fucking mountain if you have three other people helping you. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. And I just like would want to add like a third panel where they're pushing. They're finally actually reach the top of the mountain and push it over. And that's just like the revolution. Mm -hmm. Or they yeah. blow up the mountain or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Either. Either or. <laughs> Um, yeah, and in this next one, I mean, speaking of, of blowing things up, I guess, uh, there's this uh, uh, article from The Leak, L-E-E-E-K. Which I think uh, is a is itself a satire of The Onion. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Uh, and the headline here is North Korean le- leader Kim Jong Un. T- Kim Jong Un tied three people to a hot air balloon and sent them into space as punishment for supporting Israel's right to exist. And he had a photo <laughs> of, of Kim Jong Un's uh, face and and uh, the DPRK flag behind it. And then there's a this that was a quote tweet where there is someone's then saying Henry uh, Hakamaki. Oh yeah, Henry H- Hakamaki of uh, of, uh, of gorilla gorilla history. Who said, you have no idea how much I wish that this was true. And <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, that yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, that would be so much, that would be a, a good headline. Like, uh, we saw uh, there was a, another capitalist who was corrupt who got sentenced to death today in China or just the other day. Well, there was another one of those today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah. No, I mean, that's just one of those things where it's like, you know, one of those bullshit uh, bourgeois propaganda lines that you're like, damn, this would be cool if it wasn't fake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, there's another one. And this one, uh, this is not a new meme. Unfortunately, this is an evergreen one <laughs> uh, that's been going around for a while, but it's only February. And boy, uh, do I already feel this one a lot where it's it's Polly mm-hmm. and, and, and Tony from The Sopranos talking. And, uh, you know, it starts with, hey, Tone. Do you know this is going to be the most important election of our lifetime? <laughs> I can't have this conversation again. <laughs> I can't have this conversation again is my all-time favorite Sopranos meme format. It's this. so fucking awesome. But if we are going to have this conversation, I'm going to actually say this is maybe the least important election it, of our lifetimes. Yes. I, that is the one thing that I have really come to the conclusion on is this is absolutely like if you want to compare the quote unquote two sides, they are so, so in line with each other. I cannot think of another election that is less important than this one. You would almost expect them to do the like, uh, I'm Mr. Icicle, I'm Mr. Snow <laughs> song from the fucking uh, uh, stop motion Christmas special Oh, the, thing. the ice miser and the heat miser? Yeah, yeah, because they're just... frost miser from, from that one? Yeah, they're what? literally the same guy. They they could be brothers. I think in the movie they're brothers, right? <laughs> what are yeah. you talking no, this is, about? This is Dan and John remember old Christmas uh, stop motion things. If you've never heard the Heat Miser and the Frost Miser songs, they're bops. They're really good songs. <laughs> they are good songs. <laughs> okay. Anyway, our next meme is <laughs> uh, King of the Hill meme, and it has that guy who was testifying in front of Congress. I forget his fucking I, name. I think it's the... I think that isn't that guy like one of the like upper level guys at TikTok. Maybe is that why he was being interviewed? Yeah. He, I think he's a CEO of a tech company. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. a, definitely a tech CEO. Well, he was testifying in front of Congress, and they have his face superimposed on Khan here, uh, where Khan is normally saying that he's Laotian. Uh, and he says, "I'm from Singapore, this small island city-state located at the bottom of the Malayan Peninsula." And then you have the congressman asking him. So are you Chinese or Japanese? (laughs) I saw so many people superimposing this because, yeah, you watch the clip of, and it's Tom Cotton, Mm -hmm. a huge, huge shocker. One of the most openly fascist members of Congress is a Mm -hmm. giant racist and and doesn't know that Singapore is a country or that there's more than two kinds of East Asian people. But, like, uh, I mean, ultimately it all comes down to who doesn't care and he's grandstanding because he thinks that this racist posturing makes him look cool. But, like... It, it's so many people went to this meme 
not just because it was obvious, but because it's almost word for word what he was doing. Because the yeah. whole time mm-hmm. he's just like, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? And the guy's like, I'm from Singapore. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but were you in the party? He's like, I'm from Singapore. Singapore's not China. It's not <laughs> yeah. Taiwan. It's not Hong Kong. It's not Macau. Yeah, it's not particular. <laughs> like, like, I mean, it's, as like we would think of in our in the Western Hemisphere, not even that close. No, not really. <laughs> no. Well, also, what I love about this meme is that in the original scene in King of the Hill, shortly thereafter, Cotton Hill, notorious racist, shows up and immediately identifies Khan as Laotian, and it goes, "You're Laotian, aren't you?" I fought with some of your boys in the war. Good fighters. <laughs> 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 Which is a fun reversal of the whole situation. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, no, but I think what it, the, 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 the deeper, funnier point there to, well, I guess not, sorry, not that. The more revealing thing there, if we're going to use King of the Hill as a lens with which to analyze American society, which, I mean, what better lens? Sure. <laughs> would be to point to not the fact that, you know, the combat made uh, Cotton less racist, but the fact that reactionaries can only relate to people that they have themselves personally met. They yes. cannot empathize or relate to anybody outside that small or, circle. <laughs> or who are tactically advantageous to them for yes. a time. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. that's the thing. What's left unsaid there is the one of the good ones yes. type of attitude that always comes along with that. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, and then we, as we have tried to do is at the end of our meme review, we'll put a slightly better, uh, more wholesome meme in here. And it says, uh, the, the top text on here is, when your friend says something self-deprecating, and then there's an image, I'm guessing from like a Chinese movie. Yeah, uh, the, I don't think this is a still, this might be a still from the Red Detachment of Women. It. I'm not sure, uh, which is a great movie. But that's a, a like, uh, this is this looks like it's from a, a Cultural Revolution era Chinese film. Yeah, and then it's just this woman in a red scarf and, uh, surrounded by a bunch of other women talking to this guy. Um, and, and she just says, you can't insult a comrade in arms. <laughs> and, and I just love the, the you can't talk bad about my friend like that kind of post. I just... I. One of my favorite meme formats, absolutely. A, a very good rejoinder when somebody's being too down on themselves. That's right. All right, well, that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. We want to thank you all for listening. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get any money for doing this, so we don't run any ads or anything like that, except for this one that you're hearing right now about becoming a patron of our show. Otherwise, you can also share the show with your friends or write us a review somewhere that helps people find the show. You can find all of the links to do that at workstoppagepod.com. Make sure to jump in the Discord and have a nice chat with us about all of the things that you've learned or your favorite things about labor or anything like that. Follow us in all of the places. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and listen to Red Game Table, which actually has a new episode. Whoa. You know, I, I keep saying listen to Red Game Table, and if you've done it, you're just like, I've, I've listened to it. Well, there is new content. But anyway, as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Revolution. Solidarity, on. everybody. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. What is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? An international Western 
power structure. Another album, an amalgam of the anger, the message presented just like a prayer. Passion, dedication to tell a story. Can't rely on the media to do it for me. Crowds keep coming, bumping that freedom music. Beats slap hard, lyrics are written lucid. Killing like Cupid, aiming darts at your hearts. Building up a movement, weeding out the marks. Marks, Lennon, Mal got books to go around. Surviving in a system that tries to break us down. Social Darwinism, a shit's for the animals. I guess that's why Wall Street acts like cannibals. Cannibals killed by ancestors too. Now we got drones right above the roof. Proof vanished, killed, the military's ill. Police act the same, our taxes pay the bills. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. Cause everybody knows that's the real solution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. Cause everybody knows that's the real solution. Local to global, barrio to boulevard, building with the Brothers and the sisters that be living hard Break it down, how the mayor take this town How the players of this game claim they understand your pain It's a shame how these neighborhoods have changed Where the rich cockers load will pay to live in the bay Tech nine to these techies and the rest of these preppies Hella stress living in the belly Other beasts where they feast and fornicate Where a finger on a button can annihilate a state America, such a violent place Government kills a will so the people imitate Break the chains like Houdini in the hood Carry on the fight, I continue where you stood This ain't plastic or platinum This is an anthem for the proletariat, not the management We don't want reform, we want a revolution We don't want reform, we want a revolution We don't want reform, we want a revolution Cause everybody knows that's the real solution We don't want reform, we want a revolution We don't want reform, we want a revolution We don't want reform, we want a revolution Cause everybody knows that's the real solution I'm in the international with my confidants Third world side Solidarity for your consciousness Combat wrong ideas and revisionists If you want real change, gotta be militant Back in the day, when rappers were radical Now they act like robots, mechanical Move like old money, trying to be hip Imagine being native and seeing that first ship Shit, I ain't running, I'm gunning Till it's empty, the sentence of those That never went gently Rose grows in Gaza, rose like Lisa Massa Write prose for those with no food or water It's simple, the system is simple Unjust. A few have it all while the rest get This ain't luck, it's a big setup So if you upset, then get up we don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. Cause everybody knows that's the real solution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. We don't want reform, we want a revolution. Cause everybody knows that's the real solution. Many people in this country who want to see us, the minority, and who don't want to see us taking too militant or too uncompromising a stand are absolutely against the successful uh, regrouping or organizing of any faction in this country whose thought and whose thinking pattern is international rather than national.